Hello and welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm your host and my name is Dr. Leslie Deacon. And I'm your other host and I'm Dr. Sarah Lombe. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Portal podcast. Um, I'm here today with Dr. Leslie Deacon as usual and also really pleased to welcome Dr. Angela Wilcock and Dr. Sheila Quaid uh, who are going to talk to us today about their CAS paper and their research um, looking at the role of emotions. Um, I'll let everyone in the room introduce themselves before we get stuck into the conversation. So um, Angie, do you want to start off? Yes, I'm Dr. Angela Wilcock. I'm a lecturer in criminology at the University of Sunderland. Research interests are domestic violence, um, working with perpetrators as well as the victims, and also um, emotionality in research, which we're talking about today. Thank you. And Sheila? Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Quaid, and I'm a sociologist. I've been a senior lecturer in sociology here for quite a long time, nearly a century, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And my research interests fall into two areas Um, specifically sociology of families negotiating intimacies and personal lives and the second area is critical pedagogies so I've recently published in both and really pleased to say we're very excited that a book that Angie and I have both been involved in is coming out very soon on sociology of families. That is exciting is that the title of the book? No the title of the book is negotiating families personal lives and intimacies in the 21st century and it's going to be published by Routledge. So we've just had a last meeting about that today and we we're just excited to get this sort of out by December. Yes. That is exciting. Yeah. We'll be looking out for that, definitely. And obviously, Leslie is here too. So Hello, yeah, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here as <laughs> Not well. Not let you introduce <laughs> no, yourself. You don't need to hear it hi. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, it's really, really great to have you both here and I'm looking forward to this conversation today because I think um, what your paper is about crosses over into so many different things and um, is really relevant for social workers and social work practice as well. Um, so I thought what would be really helpful and what, the way we usually start off is just um, to, to ask our guests to kind of just explain any key terms and concepts in their paper just so we've sort of set the, set the frame for the conversation to follow. And I think one of the really big things um, that you talk about in your paper and that comes up quite a lot is feminist standpoint epistemology and I thought it'd be really helpful because I think that will kind of come up in the conversation if we can start with a bit of an overview of what that is and what that means and then we can we can carry on. <laughs> yeah. Right, do you want me to start? Well feminist of you, yeah. feminist standpoint <laughs> for me is important in terms of how we are positioned within the in in the research when we, when we're actually doing it. And for me it involves the intersubjectivity, um, which is a term I suppose I need to explain as well. Um <laughs> <laughs> that I've mentioned it. Um, it's about having a common relationship with the participant. So if you're researching domestic violence with professionals, I can then link into my professional background in frontline service provision. So it gives some commonality in terms of where we're positioning. And this, for me, I suppose, is about challenging that power imbalance. Never removes it, but it challenges that. Um, and it, it, for me, it also brings the voices of those people that we are researching to the fore. So it's their, mm-hmm. they're giving the story of their lived realities. Yeah. And I think that's important because it's their life histories that we want to know and get to the bottom of for those who are more or less marginalised. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. And I think, um, you know, straight away there's a real kind of crossover in what you've just said with social work practice yeah. because obviously that really is about working with people with different lived experiences and... Um, you know, thinking about the power imbalance in in practitioners' yeah. day to day roles and how they really kind of support people to, yeah. to talk to them and yeah. share their experiences. So that's really helpful start to the conversation. And can I just you yeah. said you like your practice? What was your practice experience? Just yeah, I've university? worked with in social housing, um, mm-hmm. with in not only the task force but in terms of homelessness. With um, it was Sunderland City Council. Then it got you know went over to to um, it's now known as Gen Two. Yeah. Um, for for many years, I worked as a housing manager in in frontline um, around some of the most marginalised areas in the city of Sunderland. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also um, worked within HMPPS. So obviously working with the most vulnerable people and there's a lot of emotion involved within that yeah. because in terms of family liaison, you're working with the families who 
of what we call the hidden sentence that they're running that sentence alongside the offender um, right. and it's very hard for some and so there's a lot of emotion especially mm. at visits and dealing with family issues uh, within yeah. that system because yeah. that was what, what, what I connected to I connected a lot with the paper it was really really I really enjoyed I'd read it when it first came out so nice to go back to it and have a read through and think about what questions I wanted to ask about mm-hmm. it one of the things I was thinking because you you um I think Angie, you'd said about having like, like that idea of being emotionally exhausted mm-hmm. through from interviewing from that process. Yeah. And you've mentioned there about practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wonder what you you know how well do you think that we do support people with those kind of things? I think it's very difficult. Um, I think in terms of emo- in terms of our professional boundaries, we t- we tend to to deal with these situations in the field. Um, and I think we tend not to show, as, as a practitioner or as a researcher, obviously you don't show that emotion in the field because you're concerned with the person that you're actually working with. Yeah. And I think it's very difficult. It's, and I think this is where we become reflexive and reflective. And I think there's an argument between the two in terms yeah. of how they sit. <clears throat> um, when you leave that and you're then sitting back to think about what you've just actually done. And I think in terms of the research... I wasn't exploring people's experiences of domestic violence. I was wanting to understand what they knew about domestic violence mm-hmm. or what they understood that to be. And I had a couple of women in the field who then said, oh, my God, I'm experiencing domestic violence. Right. And their lived realities changed. Their understandings of their relationship changed. And it was quite emotional. Some of them were very upset at realising that they needed to change their situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and afterwards, I, I came out and thought oh my god yeah. my research I've provoked this and and we talk about being an insider but we can choose when to be an outsider as well and I think that happens in practice and when you are working with someone yes you've got that insider status in terms of the <coughs> the intersubjectivity but then you can choose to be an outsider to deal with that um like shifting positions, shifting positions yeah to yeah. get that yeah and move away but then when you you are reflecting on that process that you've just gone through but then you're being reflexive of how you've positioned yourself within that Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's when the emotion sort of um, for me and transcription is when that voice came through and and even now I talk about it there's one woman I can still hear Mm -hmm. in terms because I had to stay at least two hours after the interview she did find it she said quite cathartic because she hadn't spoke about any of this before and um, and I think that's for practitioners dealing with that I think uh, and as we do we do take it home because mm-hmm. it's I find it interesting because Sheila you and I have over the years have chatted about emotionality and mm. research because I mean you can see with practice where it's it's there it's in the everyday but then when it comes to research it's like there's a background idea of, of mm-hmm. uh, it must be rigorous it must be you must be independent and objective mm-hmm. and we've talked at times haven't we about that acknowledgement that actually research is personal yeah, and it is emotional, and it is close to home for most of us. Yeah. Can I just answer your question by coming back to yeah, yeah. coming back to feminist epistemology? I want to add something to what Angie's mm, been course, saying about yeah. feminist epistemology. For me, the emphasis in that phrase is on the word epistemology, which is knowledge and where mm. knowledge is produced from. And so, I'm just really adding to what Angie said, and I embraced feminist epistemology many many years ago because I have a history before my job here where I developed a women's studies degree in another university and the whole ethos of developing a women's studies degree is to situate women's knowledge as the, at the centre of the programme and so Donna Haraway's situated knowledges and Sandra Harding's feminist standpoint epistemology were things that I read very very early on And there's one phrase that stands out from Sandra Harding for me, which has guided both of us, hasn't it, Angie, in terms of the work that you've done on your PhD and on mine, which is the one phrase from Sandra Harding that the researcher, if feminist, and using this approach, you put yourself on the same critical plane as the person you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that your life is going to be researched as well Mm -hmm. or that your life and all your experiences are become data as well but it does mean that the relationship between the researcher and the researched has to be as open and as transparent to the reader and the audience as possible Mm -hmm. and that's really really important when it comes to who we can research 
So for me, feminist epistemology has been an opening up rather than a focusing down on just one experience. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, on the power issue, there has for many years been a debate about whether men should interview women, mm. whether white people should interview black people about racism, whether non-disabled people should interview disabled people yeah. about living with disabilities. <clears throat> but it would be unrealistic to think that we can only ever research ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this is where feminist epistemology has been a tool for me to really deal with these power issues because the furthest we can go is to say it allows us to put our positionality on the same critical plane as the researched. Mm -hmm. So in everything I write and present from the work from, well, from PhD onwards, I, if I present at a conference or I write a paper, there's something about me in there, about who I am and how I am positioned in relation to the people that I'm interviewing. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, so not just about... Um, <coughs> it's, it's not about the, the, the commonality of um, the subject matter. It's about the positioning of the two people exactly. and acknowledging that relationship. Yeah. It's not about searching for commonalities, although that mm -hmm. often yeah. does happen yeah. because of the yeah. things that yeah. we choose to... You'll see from reading the paper yeah. that one of the things that prompted Angie and I to write this was... A discussion like this one day where we, we just realised in the middle of an interview the people that we were interviewing were triggering our emotions mm. about mm. something yeah. and so we were left with this question where do we go with this as researchers now I have friends who are trained psychotherapists and very skilled psychotherapists mm. and they have supervision and they have all sorts of um, things set up to look after their emotions and to train them to deal with emotionality and I'm not suggesting or we're not suggesting at all in our paper that this is the, the route we should go down because that's not what we need as professional researchers. But I think we do need something, mm -hmm. even if it starts with a recognition that you are going to be emotionally managing information. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a really interesting thing for me because one of the phrases that I've quoted in the paper is the way we've all been trained in education and the way we've been trained in education is, well, the, the, the quote is, there's been a historic polarity between knowledge and emotion. Mm. So in all our professions, we've been trained to think that you're only competent if you put your emotions at the door, if you leave your emotions to yeah. one side. Mm -hmm. Don't be emotionally involved. Yeah. That's the way many of us are trained in education and professional practice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what we've realised through the work that we've done is this is not right because mm -hmm. we are emotionally connected. Yeah. We yeah. are emotionally yeah. affected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're really interested, aren't we, in mm -hmm. talking to people. We're really interested for people to talk to us and mm -hmm. with you. This is brilliant to talk about what do we do as educators and researchers mm -hmm. because we think there should be something. Yeah. That recognises the emotional impact on us. Yeah, because yeah. It, it does. I mean, it, it's just, it does impact. It doesn't matter whether it's a case that you're working on or working with individuals in practice or whether it's a story. I didn't even do the interviews in a piece of re research I did. I was actually, the interviews had been done by community researchers and I was then analysing the transcriptions and doing thematic analysis. And one of the participants, I just felt like my heart was breaking. Yeah. It was about isolation and loneliness and I felt I didn't know who this person was for me they were participant you know number whatever I didn't even know their name or anything about them but their story was so powerful that I felt emotionally involved and felt you know this this is the fact that this person had shared it what they'd gone through but that was just you kind of then just you kind of park it at the door almost because that's why you and I've chatted about it because yeah. I definitely as a as a social work lecturer had gone down that road of don't do anything that's too close to home yeah, yeah. don't do anything that's too emotional and I remember the first time you that I think I sat in one of your sessions I think I was okay. doing peer review or something and I sat in oh and, I remember yeah. yeah and I was like listening and that made me rethink about Actually, I had a student who wanted to do research into um, childhood bereavement, so a child losing a parent. And my first response as the educator that like you talk about was, no, that's too, um, too close to home for, for you. But I didn't. After having, I sat and thought mm -hmm. about, okay, well, how yeah. can we support you through this process? And as you said, Angie, like the cathartic nature yeah. of it for this student, they did exceptionally well as well with mm -hmm. it. 
and it was about supporting that student through those emotions because it was so important to her to to learn yeah. about to research that area and it cannot and yes they were part of that but um i think it's so important that they, it's almost like because we think that research and practice are such separate things and they're really and that's part of what yeah. i like to sort of look at and what we're doing sarah yeah. is research and practice are not separate yeah. at all and i find it so interesting with this article that what you're trying to get us all to acknowledge is even if you don't have a commonality with that individual you have an emotional yeah. reaction yeah. because mm-hmm. we're all people yeah. and we're human beings sorry yeah no <laughs> i think what what you've just said there about research and and, and practice is very similar practitioners are researchers they are especially yeah. in terms of social work they they're going out to find out what's going on in people's lives and i think coming back to the emotion is we we are emotive beings and i think mm-hmm. as mary holmes recognizes you can't remove your emotions you can't leave them at the door because part of whether it's happy or sad these emotions frame who we are mm-hmm. and, yeah. and and it interlinks us with others as well and yes in terms of professional boundaries we deal with it but when you leave that situation you've then got to manage those emotions yeah. and everything that you've taken on board um and i think that's where we i think in terms of practitioners and, and from experience in terms of practice we not they're not looked upon is that they are actually researchers that they are delving into people's lives that they are dealing with um a lot of really sensitive um information regarding people's families that they then have to go away and decom well decompartmentalize sort of deal with that and think mm-hmm. right where do i put this uh, to be able to move forward yeah mm-hmm. i think it it just raises so many questions yeah. for practice doesn't yeah. it because it, it is that impact mm-hmm. and what you take home with you and how you manage yeah. it and also um i think what comes up a lot is that balance of when you are with someone and yeah. whether it's as a researcher or a practitioner and you're feeling something that mm-hmm. you're discussing yeah. with them how much of that do you share do you share it don't you share it yeah. there doesn't seem to be any kind of consensus around that and actually some research that I'm just writing up at the moment really touched on emotions quite a lot in that respect and it was more focused around social work education and showing emotion in the classroom Mm -hmm. and talking about different difficult topics and there was a lot of discussion about finding the balance but what that balance is no one was really that clear Mm -hmm. Um, and what was really interesting is one of the students had said um, well I won't do it because I'm I'm scared that I won't be viewed as a resilient practitioner mm-hmm. um, but the lecturers can do it because they've already, already yeah, established yeah, 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 yeah. that they can do mm-hmm. the job you know yeah. so there's something mm-hmm. about yeah just something about yeah. how 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 you might be seen that can be a concern and, and whether you can legitimately do that I think in in terms of practice, you, you do you, you you are trained to have those professional boundaries mm-hmm. that you you don't share, especially within the, mm-hmm. within an offender management background. You don't share any detail whatsoever, and I think you go into that even though you may hit triggers and a lot of the um, places I've worked. Um, a lot of the offences relate against women and, and, and they may be triggers that mm. you just don't show any, you've, you can't show any type of emotion until you leave that room and and, and um, I think we spoke earlier about an incident that I'd experienced and I was more or less thought was quite horrific and then it was just said go home you'll be fine come back take the afternoon off and come back in tomorrow mm. Um, mm, yeah. and it's like it's having I think to be for practitioners to deal with it the need a manager who does well, not enforce but encourage good reflective practice yeah um, and does yeah. take on board the impact that that has had emotionally because I think we have to be selfish as practitioners um, because we we need to be well in ourselves to be able to help those that are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's about looking after yourself to be able to look after others. Yeah. So I think there's that argument. And, I, and when I'm teaching, especially in terms of domestic violence, I'm very aware with the students that I explain... Um, that it is an emotive subject that they may recognise things that they've never thought about before and it can raise triggers mm-hmm. and make them aware that there is support out there and I think we also need to be regularly doing that in practice as well there's nothing wrong with walking away from some a family and being emotional about it I think we need to be more transparent around emotions around that mm-hmm. I think it's hard though isn't it because um, all I was emotional yesterday wasn't I Sarah and all I said to mm-hmm. Sarah is I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> you were like you don't need to be sorry yeah. but we we don't have that comfort do we in in practice in research yeah. and in our workplace environments there's like emotionality seems to be connected with um something 
to do with women yeah. that is not mm-hmm. professional not viewed in a positive way it's not viewed in uh helpful even though actually it's an expression of how you're feeling at that moment in time and we all feel like that and it's like there aren't these we don't have a safe space anywhere because that's a lot about sheila would do you say that's what you look into a lot as well yeah and i'm really thinking carefully about what you're all saying because i'm going to give an example from the past uh 26 years ago i was a research assistant around harm and abuse and as a person who hadn't been involved in this area of work before I was suddenly having to deal with material that was incredibly upsetting Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I was a little bit slow with getting the work done and I talked to the senior academic and she said can you do this work or not because if you can't there are another 10 researchers waiting for a Mm part-time job and so that was the and I think that's illustrative of the way you would be responded to in those days if you mm-hmm. said this is making me feel a little bit taken aback mm-hmm. I need a little bit more time to process what I'm seeing mm-hmm. and so that was a trigger for me as well that's always been in my mind around this as well yeah. as the experiences that Angie and I've had um, in our interview situation in, in research but you see for me uh, when that happened all those years ago and when I was emotionally impacted by things that were being said in interviews. I was sitting in people's houses interviewing them about their reproductive life choices mm-hmm. and I'm being personally impacted by what's been said and that personal impact could be um, really positive because I think I've said in the paper that one of the reasons I realised I was emotionally involved was because I was interviewing couples about having children I then did a PhD and I'm sitting in people's houses and I'm just looking around at this lovely happy environment and it's impacting me because mm. I'm thinking mm-hmm. to myself, I could have this. Yeah. I could have this. Now, that is not the respondent's concern. No. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. not, it, this is the way I think, yeah. and I'm yeah. not saying it's right or wrong. But I don't, I think that's, it's not the respondent's concern for me to say that. Mm-hmm. So my practice that I've developed for myself is not necessarily, necessarily around sharing, mm-hmm. being really clear about what I'm there for to get information from them. But what I've done is develop this insider status approach with the groups that I'm working with. And obviously it's not Mm. possible with some. But what I did in the PhD was to establish insider status as far as I possibly could in the um, access to participants part of the process where I would say something about myself, who I was, why I was interested in this research. And in researching sexual minorities, it's well known that if you do that, there's a level of trust that's mm-hmm. built around a shared experience. Yeah. And that's as far as the sharing of my information went. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't see it as appropriate for me to suddenly voice to a respondent mm-hmm. what I'm feeling because yeah. she's not there for that. Yeah. She shouldn't have to look after my no, emotions. Absolutely, yeah. So what I want is for me to go somewhere after the process mm-hmm. yeah. for a professional debrief about what I'm feeling. Yeah. That's really interesting what you're saying, Sheila, because when you started to talk, I was wondering about how that impacts on the development of rapport with your participants or, um, you know, I think the position is slightly different for social workers. But, yeah. you know, there is still an argument about what you share and how you, how much you share and how mm. that helps you to develop a relationship or how that helps you to respond with empathy or show empathy, because sometimes you know sometimes it is appropriate or it can help to say actually I do know how you feel Mm. because I've experienced some of that sometimes that's not appropriate and for me it's always kind of an instinct or a gut reaction but I'm just wondering what you think about that because you said you know you you've got quite clear position on what you will and won't share and how you do that yeah I think it's in the setting up of the well for me it's a research interview because Mm -hmm. I'm not in the same situation as many of you where I haven't had this practice experience but in a research interview I think it's in the setting up of the interview and if they've had that information about me before they've invited me into their house and they know who I am and I'm talking specifically about being in a sexual minority and doing work with sexual minorities so I'm not Mm -hmm. saying it's transferable to other Mm -hmm. situations but I think it is in the setting up of it and once they've had that information about me I then find it quite ordinary and reasonable to say, oh, yes, I know what you mean. Mm. Or, oh, yes, Mm -hmm. um, well, because I went through that route. Mm -hmm. But I didn't go through that route. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I know people who mm-hmm. have. And then they will know that I'm talking about people mm-hmm. in the community. But I think the key is in the setting up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And even then, I'm quite minimalist in what I say about myself because I feel as if I'm not there for them to deal. I, I will gauge it and use my judgment because I don't want them to feel that there's anything that they have to deal with with what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So I will yeah. only ever say it in order to achieve an empathetic reaction yeah. or a feeling of um, validity mm-hmm. in, in what's being said. Yeah. So it's, it is a question of personal judgment yeah. once I've set it up yeah. in that way. It sounds like you're creating like a, a sort of a, a comfort for them like you're by sending that information in advance you're giving them that about you and then it's it's kind of it's also about the power isn't it like you're saying about that so you're handing that information to them so that then when they have this stranger coming into their home they already know something about you and especially when you when you are talking about um discussing things with people who might experience discrimination that they can that gives them a potential comfort that that them will be understood and so it's it sounds to me that it's almost like you're responding to them rather than so it's not about your sharing it's that then in that interview process you can then they can say things to you and you can acknowledge that so it gives them the power to to sort of connect with you then on as a person and not just as the researcher who's sitting there and that becomes all important mm-hmm. when you get a heightened moment of emotion. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, and I'm talking about a piece of work that was done many years ago now for this paper, I reflected on a piece of work that was done many years ago. And the the emotion that I had to deal with in many of those interviews was anger. Mm-hmm. And it was unexpected anger. Mm-hmm. But it was anger at each other amongst the couple because they interviewed couples. And to give you an example, one of my questions would be, There is a common perception that two women who have a child want to be seen as two mothers. Is that how you see yourselves? And interestingly, by the way, um, not all lesbian couples do want to be seen as two mothers. It's very clear that there's a a demarcation between mum and other parent and those who want to be seen as two mums. It's not a a given that a family Mm. wants to be seen as two mums. But it became clear in the interview that the couple hadn't actually negotiated this with each Mm. other. Mm. and it had it was not resolved and it was a source of great pain to mm. the person who wasn't the biological mother that her partner wouldn't see her as mother or wouldn't use the word mother for her and in the interview i was left as a relatively inexperienced interviewer in a house 200 miles away from where i live um with two people saying to each other that they wanted to end it and did I have any advice about relationship oh my. Wow. <laughs> uh, uh, wow. counselling yeah, yeah. and so on yeah. so those these experiences and I mean we shared these experiences yeah. through all our Conscious conversations reason, didn't it, it? Yeah. It, yeah. and mm-hmm. talking to Angie this consciousness that this isn't just me this happens to a lot of researchers mm-hmm. just led us to think we really have to do something about managing the emotions in what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it yeah. relates to your work, Angie, because m- mine was about awkwardness, yeah. that I was left in a very awkward emotional situation and not knowing what to do, and it wasn't part of my supervision. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt at the time there was nowhere I could go with that because the supervisor just said, well, did you manage to, to get the interview? <laughs> and it was just about whether you got the interview yeah. and mm. did, did you leave them some referral advice Yes, and then, then that was it, move on to the next issue. And then talk, chatting to you about it one yeah. day, you were telling me about a situation where there was a sudden moment of feeling not quite safe in, a, yes, in an in interview property, situation. Yeah, yeah, I was carrying out an interview um, at a home again in a home, and this this um, lady um, told me that she was experiencing domestic violence, but she started talking very quietly and I heard a noise upstairs. So I presumed that the perpetrator was in the house at the time mm-hmm. and all the doors. I could hear the doors banging and closing. Um, and then it was at that point that I thought, all right, now I need to try. Well, I can't, you know, I need to leave, but we need to sort of see it through. Anyway, it came to be that at the time um, I was then, I think for me, my professional training came into play because you, you always recognise you sit with your back to the door you always have an exit and I think that mm-hmm. I played out how I was positioned whether it, I did that subconsciously I really don't know mm. um, and I asked the lady if there was anybody in the house and she said no we don't. it was um, a son 
who was home from school so he was upstairs and I asked if she wanted to carry on right. with the interview obviously because there was a child in the property um, and we arranged to, to do it another time mm-hmm. um, at a later date because she was quite emotional as well and I did get quite a bit of the data but it's at that point that you realise the positions you're putting yourself in as well mm-hmm. when you are interviewing people in their homes, in their homes and you yeah. are dealing with domestic violence where the thought of a perpetrator being around hadn't as a researcher crossed my mind right okay. that there could have been somebody yeah. in the, else in that property um i was like it's really interesting you were saying that because i've actually i've just been in a class teaching um students around research and um we were talking about whistleblowing and things mm-hmm. like that and and students were sharing about how you know if they work at a shop they're told don't approach someone if you just see yeah. that they're uh, you think they're shoplifting mm-hmm. they're told don't approach yeah. them and that started me thinking that that's really interesting because I started thinking about all of the situations yeah. as a practitioner that I was in mm-hmm. where I really was at risk and, and my safety was being challenged mm-hmm. um, quite a lot and it was I, I remember a, a situation where I was having to go and effectively with police to, to remove Mm-hmm. Some some children, um, and we have we were getting a, a protection order, and we didn't know if if the the, the partner would be there, and there was mm-hmm. domestic violence, and I was asked, well, was it? You know, I was told yes, it was a risk, so take the police. Yeah, and then I was standing there about to go in, and the police asked me are you expecting risk in this situation? And I said, yes. So they said, I'll just get my stab vest. Mm-hmm. So off they went to get their stab vest and I stood there with pen yeah, and paper. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I was like... I don't know why we're laughing. I know, but it, it, was, all, it was like... Yeah. It's become like my little anecdote that I share, but it was like I literally looked... I had a notepad and a pen and I was like okay so what I've got is my voice that's what I have to use in these situations and that was just seen as an everyday occurrence at work just an everyday thing I went in there I did talk to her it did go okay but I just that made that comes up a lot for me that and and because when I became a researcher then I went with that hat on yeah. and I was thinking, is it safe? Mm-hmm. I didn't like the idea of going into people's houses yeah. to interview them. And I was thinking, is it safe for me to be in there? I didn't. I felt that the, the yeah. safety around me was very poor. And and it concerns me a bit that that we, we don't acknowledge because with those emotions yeah. comes fear. Yeah. And, and that discomfort yeah. you feel in these situations and social workers are very much left with their yeah. their wits yeah. the <laughs> you know, they, they yeah. are mm-hmm. and in some situations where you know it's a risk it's just take another social worker with yeah. you yeah. and it's like well okay but that's not going yeah. to necessarily help mm-hmm. you know and, and we don't mm. acknowledge yeah. I think these I, things I probably should have been more aware of that because from a housing background I constantly you know, I've been taken hostage for a short while oh, wow. in the past so in terms of my housing background I probably should have had more awareness of that or I had probably become complacent mm-hmm. in the fact that I've done this for a lot of years going out of people's houses to speak to people and desensitising situations yes. that you're in and, and, and especially in terms of HMPPS you're desensitising constant situations that maybe and I, and I think we talked about this didn't we because Sheila was obviously one of my supervisors on my PhD and after some of I was in pieces after some of these interviews um and I think we just talked about how um this was totally different to my professional background mm-hmm. you've got all those professional boundaries and, and the CU was a this this person who has got some type of authority in terms yes. of that professional protection I suppose but going in as a researcher it's a totally different and the mm-hmm. and in the university obviously I was for Sheila and Catherine were very good I always told them what day I was doing the interview what mm-hmm. house where I was going I had a message when I went in a message when I come yeah. out so I had very good supervision however if I had not had that the rest of the university nobody knew where I was at what day I was doing what interview no. and there was no for all we had to get the ethical clearance I think in terms of ethics there was no clear guidance from that on other than from the supervision mm-hmm. well that raises a whole other question about ethical procedures yeah. I think mm-hmm. about where the risk lines and where the responsibility lines Mm -hmm. but going back that's an interesting and important point to make about how we produce this paper it came out of Angie talking to me after difficult situations Mm -hmm. in research Mm -hmm. as a Mm co-supervisor and the two of us chatting together Mm -hmm. and then deciding to just talk about this more and then start to document what we were thinking and feeling about it Mm -hmm. and out of that we developed this work so Mm -hmm. it's been very productive for us 
but we're yeah. really interested really happy to be here today because we're really interested to mm. talk to colleagues and just keep sharing discussions around mm-hmm. some of these issues around emotionality yeah. yeah I think it's an ongoing conversation yeah. isn't it mm. so that's yeah. what I really like about your paper is that you present your experiences mm-hmm. and you talk through them and really what you're doing or what I took from that is that you were trying to open up this conversation yeah, yeah. Um, because it isn't talked about in in research you know in practice perhaps as well as much as it could or should be but I I was really interested in what you said before Angie about becoming (laughs) desensitised and I think um, that was something I wanted to ask you both about as well Mm. because you know that we've talked about how you know we're human we experience emotions and and that's okay and actually the value of that Mm -hmm. um, but obviously you know, we also talked about the need to kind of look after ourselves. And there's yeah. a lot in this about being self-aware, isn't there? Yeah. And, and knowing yourself and what you can manage. Mm-hmm. But there is a danger of going too far one way or the other, mm-hmm. I suppose. Like, if you do become desensitised yeah. to people's <clears throat> positions mm-hmm. and the experiences yeah. that they have, or if you become, you try to shut yourself off yeah. from feeling that so much yeah. that you become almost hardened. or yeah. You know, so I just wondered if you had anything to say about that side of it, like, Feel yeah. it, but don't feel it too much or I mean I think how do you manage it? Do you know it's it's really difficult. I don't think you ever can shut yourself off from it because I mm. think there's some point where something happens within your life and you have a trigger and it takes me back to a point. Mm-hmm. And I think we had this in, in HMPPS where I've worked with a lot of different types of offenders and sometimes I and it was really strange because we had an incident where there was a gentleman brought into the prison who had actually um harmed animals and, and they were they were sentenced for that and I found it very difficult to work with those people mm. and the, because I'm an animal lover mm-hmm. and we had this conversation and it was raised around emotion at the time in the prison they said and, and, and it was said to me I can't believe you you'll work with these all other types of offenders but you won't work with someone who's harmed an animal and it made us realise that how much I don't, how much you work with these people open up and tell you their stories and take great pleasure sometimes in telling you some of the details that you within that professional background I'm, I, I must have become I don't know so hardened to that yeah. or acceptable that that does happen and we have so many people who do that and it's very rare that you do mm-hmm. get this different type of offender in but it really touched me through being <laughs> loving dogs and being an animal lover yeah. um, and that made me go away and think about it in terms of and back to the to the work around violence and domestic violence and and the work I can do with perpetrators in looking at that that but no there is still those triggers because every now and again you hear something or somebody's mm-hmm. states something things are brought out in class when you're talking about the it triggers that emotion and it takes you back to events or incidents yeah. um that may have happened um, and I mean I talk about it in my work I've got experience, personal experiences of domestic violence so I can something in that trigger that can take you back to that point yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think the professional boundaries we have or, or whatever those skills this emotional resilience we build in terms of our work um, um, is there but I think on a personal level there's always a chance even you're out or um, I remember I was once in a, in a busy pub and it was a fight and I just went into mass panic because for me it was getting myself out of that situation and I think um, we were sitting at a table minding our own business but instant triggers of mm-hmm. of assault and it mm-hmm. was like, I you know, the thoughts, you, you hear, you can, mm-hmm. and it brings it back. So I, I, I don't think, given who we are, I don't think we can ever remove no. yourself totally from that. And mm-hmm. I, I, people say I've come hardened to it but I don't believe that we actually can not, not fully, fully not fully no, not, not we learn to de- i think we learn to deal with it much mm-hmm. more um and we are, we are we we think oh yeah i've heard that you know and you can but and i think we've had discussions about harm and violence with people that everybody we had i think we had this conversation earlier everybody looks at harm differently mm-hmm. everybody understands certain levels of harm differently some people can be sworn at and be really you know hurt by that yeah. emotively some people can just use it daily and not and that's a natural occurrence for them talking mm-hmm. about swearing yeah and indifferent so it's a different types but even certain types of abuse you know you have this common couple of violence where they're constantly hitting and, and that might be a natural thing or pushing you know for them but for somebody else that could be a huge mm-hmm. you know emotional harm um mm-hmm. and i think we've all got different levels of resilience yeah. that we slowly build on over the years that probably does give us some type of barrier but I don't think we can fully 
because at some yeah. point we, we we can be taken back at any point. Yeah, I think that's so sorry, true. Sarah, sorry, no, I just no, we do this you. sometimes, <laughs> we don't do. we? <laughs> do you want to go? I was just thinking because um, the the other side to to that though, isn't it, is where you've got that resilience is actually where actually it's all just it's you're adding yeah. experience yeah. after experience yeah. after experience, and one of the things that does happen in practice is around stress and burnout. Yeah, yeah. and um, that's something that 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 trigger then is just that final mm-hmm. case or that final mm-hmm. situation that you encounter where it just knocks mm-hmm. you over the edge mm-hmm. because actually certainly in child protection yeah. social work which is the yeah. environment I was worked mm-hmm. in it, you can't maintain that because I was thinking about when you got you know with with your article that you're talking about the kind of for, for the research the interviews are a, a finite mm-hmm. piece that you're gathering although actually obviously yeah. you're transcribing yeah. and you're going over and over it but actually in practice you're encountering those situations again and again and again and again and again and I'm what concerns me I suppose is that we're really talking about opening up this conversation getting people to think about it more I'm thinking about supervisions and I'm thinking that's about case management mm-hmm. and there might be a little check-in yeah. But not to the extent of, you know, going through your cases, going through all of those home visits you've Mm -hmm. done and that, I mean, it's like it's once a month. How many visits you do in a day? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and this is something, I think, something that's come through when Sarah and I have been doing these recordings and podcasts is about having the space and the time to reflect yeah, yeah. yeah. to come thing, up yeah. I think in every single yeah. conversation every single yeah. <laughs> we need this yeah. we want yeah. some space yeah. Yeah. but I think in terms of practitioners and more so social workers they're caseloads and the case studies how do you do you make that time yeah. mm-hmm. and I think this comes back to um work I think it was work I done with Nigel uh Malin in uh, in the oh. in the past around uh, the social workers um and I remember speaking to um the management structure had a totally different attitude or didn't have the understandings that the social workers had on the ground in terms of what each needed of what they mm. actually needed yeah and they, they you know they'd said we literally moved from one case to the next we're so busy um that we we have no admin we need somebody to do the admin to give us time to focus on our case studies um and, and i thought about in terms of my practice the right because no matter where you work in practice there's never the resources that you actually need yeah to give you that emotional support but also to to alleviate um mm-hmm. to give you time to yeah. take time out and if you've just dealt with a really difficult case and you need to take some time away then having that additional support somebody who could step in who knows that underneath yeah. or can do the you know remove some of the paperwork for you have time with a with a line manager or a case manager to take that to forward that. in reality it doesn't work it doesn't work yeah and you're right yeah. because the day-to-day <laughs> job is so busy i think yeah. what ends up happening is that reflection either doesn't happen or no. it spills into yeah what should be not work time yeah yeah you know? take it home yeah. you take, so you take it, home. it home and you yeah. and that's on in the uh-huh. car when you get home yeah. that's when you've got the space to actually yeah. think about well what did mm-hmm. I what yeah. happened mm-hmm. today and how mm-hmm. do I feel about that mm-hmm. and I think yeah. um it was one of your questions I see but I think it's a good time to ask it so, is it um, which one <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask Sheila something else but it's no, just one of the ones you jotted down before we came in about um re- re- reflexivity <laughs> yeah because yeah, yeah, I put yeah. that reflexivity being such an important tool yeah, it is such an important tool because I think that for, for me reflexivity is about what you're taking in, in yeah. and the impact that that can have and then it's like this cause and effect where there's this constant relationship going on and I don't know necessarily that people fully understand that so actually Sheila can I kind of connect you to that because what I was if I connect it with what I was going to ask was because you I think did you mention like psychotherapists they they will have their mm. counseling with each other afterwards to help them deal with with stuff so do you think that there's like a, a space for this for reflexivity that that we need to have in in not just social work practice but across the board really I think that is one of our priorities mm-hmm. going forward which is an encouragement to let's build this into um professional practice around research yeah i'm listening to you all talking about practice and you've all got lots more experience well i haven't got much experience in the sort of practice you're talking about but building it into what we do Mm -hmm. and building in spaces for that Mm -hmm. but it's also linked to something you were asking me earlier sarah about creating a dialogue here Mm -hmm. 
because one of the things I've been interested in for years is um, how do you create spaces for dialogue? Because I think dialogue doesn't mm-hmm. just happen mm-hmm. and it has to be carefully set up. And this has all changed my practice in a, in a, in a fun- fundamental way around organising conferences because for year, a few years I've run these Nature Nurture Future conferences yeah. with a local project in, in Gateshead. And one of the things that we've done is to create a space where the management of people's emotions is already built into the planning. Mm-hmm. So I have a psychotherapist there mm-hmm. because we know we're going to be talking about... Well, one of the first conferences I ran was called Mum's the Word mm. and a fantastic former yeah. colleague of ours, Ross Crawley from Psychology, most of her work is around... It was all all matters maternal. Mm-hmm. And Ros Crawley's work was is and her recent work has just been published about Rimmer's experiences of stillbirth Mm -hmm. and she started talking in this conference and presenting her paper and about five of the women just just left the room because they were overcome with tears and Mm -hmm. feelings of upset Mm -hmm. and this really struck me um, because they left the event and they were the women who should have been able to really get get something from that and I thought about it the next time and I approached somebody who said she would be happy yeah. to be a psychotherapist around at the event. And I'm not claiming to be qualified or skilled. I've just tried some things yeah. out around mm-hmm. managing emotion. Mm-hmm. And so the next time we did it, um, I had a psychotherapist there who who says that she does she can do little 10-minute holding work with people. So if somebody's finding themselves to be upset about something that's been covered or it's triggering something mm-hmm. from the past... Mm-hmm then she can do 10 minutes in the corridor and she calls it holding work. Mm. And it it did happen the next time and four or five women were very, very upset. And my colleague, external colleague, did this holding work and all five women came back in mm. because a little bit of management of, of the emotions had just been put into place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what I've noticed in my life professionally is if you cry... When you're in a professional space, you think you have to leave. Mm-hmm. Mm. If you cry, yeah, you think you have to leave the event, yeah, because you're not a valid member of that group if you're crying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to put things in place to say, if you cry, this is what we're going to do. So like, there's a strategy. There's a strategy, yeah, mm-hmm. and so, yeah. you will move through it, and then yeah. be able to get something from the day. And that has worked really beautifully mm-hmm. because, um, well, our good colleague Caroline Mitchell, the, who, who you know, uh, uh, came to one of my events and said, this is unbelievable, the way in which we got to a depth of conversation mm-hmm. around very, very personal things amongst people who didn't know each other. And I remember her saying to me, how did you do this? Mm-hmm. How did you do this? And then she made a radio programme of what we did down at um, Thought Foundation. So I've really thought through some of the ways mm-hmm. of doing this and I'm I'm only trying things out. Mm-hmm. I haven't got any answers, but I have noticed that if you allow people to feel emotional, work through it for 10 minutes with somebody skilled and qualified, then they can still stay. They can, yeah. they can still be professionally involved, mm-hmm. which leads me to the writer who really moved us on with all of this, wasn't it? And the landmark paper for both Angie and I was um, Mary Holmes's. <clears throat> 2010 paper on emotional yeah. emotionalisation of reflexivity. Yeah, and we read that paper, and mm. that just sparked this work. I'm going to have to read that one. one. <laughs> I have to look at that because I I read the paper we we're talking about today a while ago because I I used it to support something mm-hmm. else I was yeah, writing, yeah, and I'd seen that paper. reference. Yeah. It looks really good. Yeah. We will link to it in the show notes yeah, so that everyone can find it. Yeah, it's a good that paper. sounds so professional, yeah. doesn't yeah. it? Link to yeah. show notes. Yeah. I think. What you were saying there, Sheila, is that um, what what, just listening to you talk there, I think that what's the biggest and like, yeah, you're saying, look, I don't have the answers. But what it is, is that you're acknowledging the presence of the emotions. And I think that's that's really what I'm getting from this is that if we don't acknowledge they are there, (coughs) so they are going to happen and they're going to happen somewhere <laughs> we either if we acknowledge them though it's almost giving um you're you're saying to people who were there that it's okay so their response is okay and and that creates a safe yeah. a safety for mm-hmm. them that that then what they don't have to feel is that oh my gosh i'm losing it i need to leave this mm-hmm. place yeah. and i think that that's something that i think we can learn a lot from across mm. the board to to uh, 
acknowledge and give space to this mm. because it it is happening whether whether people accept it or not it is and i think that your ideas about you know wanting to do future yeah. research and i think that would be so yeah. interesting to look at the different ways in which emotions are managed within practice environments yeah. because and and how much they're acknowledged and how much space is given yeah. to them as well i think it brings strength as well in terms of recognizing emotion because um how we go move on to, and manage those i think the next time in terms of emotional resilience and especially in practice when we work and in practice and we have that emotionality i think it gives a certain amount of strength to a person to realize that um they are dealing with vulnerable situations that they are being empathetic mm-hmm. um, and there's nothing wrong with, with having that emotional feeling when you when yeah. you're removing it and opening up because i think yeah. it does give somebody that strength to say well Yes, as so people go into social work because they want to, they want to nurture, they want to yeah. support. And showing that empathy, I think we should be embracing rather than saying that this shouldn't be happening and you should be mm-hmm. dealing with it much more yeah. uh, sternly. I completely agree. And, oh, you've got your hand up, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> you may speak. <laughs> on, on, uh, underneath all of this, there is something really quite exciting about pushing this. Mm. issue mm-hmm. of emotionality because it is deeply, deeply unsettling to very ancient and powerful ways of knowing things mm-hmm. yes. because yeah. historically we've been taught that um, true knowledge is objective knowledge mm-hmm. rational, yes. distant emo- got to be objective mm-hmm. um, can't be subjective and all of this is deeply deeply unsettling and then I remember c- going back to our landmark paper that mm-hmm. just really pushed mm-hmm. us into taking this further, Mary Holmes I just remember reading one sentence that she said one day and it just stayed with me all the way through this which was, if we have emotionally engaged research practice, then we produce emotionally embedded knowledge. Mm -hmm. And when we start producing emotionally embedded knowledge, we are unsettling the academy. Mm -hmm. Because traditionally, the only true knowledge is rational, distant, objectified. Mm. That's another argument in itself, is it? So (laughs) So when I read that by Mary Holmes, I just thought, this is where we need to be. Um, in terms of the future of how we produce knowledge. Mm-hmm. But also, it's a feminist argument that's been around for a long time, but I've mm-hmm. been able to think about it much in a much clearer way yeah. since Angie and I have been working yeah, on this. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I, I completely agree. I love that you've, you've brought that up because mm-hmm. there are different ways of knowing, and this is, this is important. This is anti-oppressive as yeah. well as being a feminist exactly. perspective yes. because it's acknowledging um, different ways yeah. of knowing and giving them you know giving them yeah. that um sort of emotional way yeah. of knowing all that embodied knowledge yeah. a, a power and a status mm-hmm. that yes. it needs but i think what struck me before as well was um you know what you were talking about for me in the, the creation of those spaces for emotion and what you'd said Sheila about we will acknowledge this we will not mm-hmm. pretend yeah <laughs> either that we don't have yeah. emotions because we're all professionals or that if you do get upset you have to leave and take it away because we don't want to see it mm. what you're doing there is creating um a space where it's openly acknowledged in a space of, of safety and for me that really linked into a kind of trauma-informed mm-hmm. way of working as well because what we're talking about are people bringing those previous potentially traumatic experiences yeah. that mm-hmm. are triggered as you were saying and one of the kind of key principles of that way of working is the creation of, of spaces of safety and a sense of safety establishing trust you know prioritizing empowerment mm-hmm. and enabling people to speak up yeah. collaborating you know all of those things mm-hmm. that we're talking about kind of fit within that trauma-informed approach yeah. as well we're actually thinking um you know about what people's experiences are and how they mm-hmm. impact on how they deal with different situations and react to different things and I think you know for social work practice mm-hmm. it's so important because we do know as well that a lot of um, anecdotally from interviewing social work students and from the literature we know that a lot of people come into social work practice yeah. because they've got their own lived experiences yeah, of yeah. lots of different mm-hmm. things um, so you know there are going to be emotions and, and 
I, I just yeah I just think it's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm rambling on you're having that, a little you're just I having started, a little yeah, I think happy it's not an accident that most PhDs it. on yeah. lesbian and gay parenting are by lesbian and gay parents it's not mm-hmm. an accident yeah mm. no that yeah. most PhDs on domestic violence are by women who've either been supporting mm-hmm. or experiencing mm-hmm. women yeah. experiencing domestic yeah. violence but I also think recognising that emotion is impossible important in as well as being a practitioner because words can't always say the depth of harm that person's mm. felt but if you're looking at an incident where there's people around and there's a lot of emotion and that person is re- you can recognize the depth of harm and and that's data in itself that's rich yeah. you, you're realizing the harm that that woman yeah. has gone through or that person's gone through that they're willing to give you or even as a practitioner if that person's not saying anything but you're looking at them you know as an emotional wreck you can see that they've experienced a depth of harm that they can't talk about so Mm. you know there's something there that needs that support and I think Mm. we need to be embracing that as well and not just saying well she never really said that but we know there's something there that we need to look at further it's been allowed to go with that isn't it because Mm -hmm. when you're when you were talking just then I was thinking about like my own PhD research and I positioned myself as as a social worker and part of my interviews was with social workers so I did and I did present myself in that way to create that sort of comfort that I was saying before but what I found frustrating was that there were I also interviewed parents and carers Mm -hmm. about their experiences of of supporting their child who had displayed harmful sexual behaviour and and there was emotion there and there was stress there Mm -hmm. massive stress Mm -hmm. That it almost like well that's not part of it let's yeah. put that to one yeah, side and when yeah. I, I know and when yeah. I'm sitting there thinking about what you're dis- yeah. we're discussing yeah. today I'm thinking that 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 was like really important that's raw raw data yes it's raw data and it's yeah. gone and yeah. it's not there go on but Sheila. it is really important I feel strongly about this mm-hmm. that it is really important to draw distinctions between what we're doing as researchers and educators mm-hmm. and what people are doing as emotional supporters yeah like therapists or yes of course yeah and so yeah on. and one of my little practices has been that I've developed is to say to a student an academic piece of work is not therapy yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. to engage in a PhD is not therapy no. and what I've developed and I'll be interested to know what other people do but if you have a student who comes along and says I want to do a, I mean we've got a student mm. at the moment mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. wants to do something mm-hmm. very closely related to experience mm-hmm. yeah and um, we've all in the past had dissertation students who want to do something like you said earlier yeah so what I get students to do quite often is two sides of A4 of what brought me to study this mm-hmm. and spend some time on the emotional drive to do yeah. this work and I'm interested to work with colleagues to like develop more practices around yeah. how do we handle the emotion but do the clear distinction between the emotion and the work. And we know that that emotion is going to come through the work, but making it really clear that an academic piece of work yeah. is not your way to... It's not there are solve other the ways that are going to deal yeah. with no. the emotionality. Yeah. So I just felt that was quite important to say really it is really important I think it is because it's about acknowledging it yeah Yeah. because you you do and and I've I've used that that approach with with students because it's like you you can't then when they're coming with an an emotional um, topic that they want to look at you can't just sort of dismiss that and it's about Mm -hmm. like going back to what you were saying before it's about acknowledging that it's there Mm -hmm. so therefore in acknowledging it you can get that person to express the emotional feelings about why they want to do that in order to then be able to put that to just to one side Mm -hmm. not pretend it's not there but acknowledge that that is then not part of um, the the research per mm. se because like you were saying before Sheila it's not not only is it not your therapy it's also not the participants yeah. mm. responsibility to manage your yeah. mm. emotions mm. it's the it, you are then as the researcher you're then the professional in that mm. situation yeah. so you don't take that in and when you're thinking about sharing it's about it's done with a careful consideration for them mm. isn't it mm. I, I just I was just when I was thinking there I was just a final point to draw it together was just the fact that we've been discussing with other people about the fact that we um, we don't quite know how to change things. You know, how do you raise these questions? How do you do it? And I feel like this is 
presented us with yeah. a potential way yeah. mm-hmm. to actually start challenging and questioning. We would be really interested if anybody hears anything in this and it just makes them think about changing practice. Be really interesting to hear yeah. how and to why. bring it forward. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. We are, in fact, yeah. Um, yeah, we're looking at that specifically and we will Brilliant. be asking our yeah, listeners good. to share mm-hmm. with us how yeah. listening impacts <laughs> yeah. on their practice. Yeah. If it does, mm-hmm. we hope it does. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I think we could talk about this yeah. all day, yeah. and I yeah. wish we had. <laughs> we wish we had yeah. more time, but we do need to draw it to yeah. a close. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say thank you so much um, to both of you for coming in and talking about this. And I hope that the conversation continues. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And come back at your next yes. point, and we can revisit. Yeah, we can yeah. revisit and yeah. see where you get to Brilliant. with the work. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs> You have been listening to The Portal Podcast, linking research and practice for social work with me, Dr Sarah Lombe. And Dr Leslie Deacon. And this was funded by the University of Sunderland, edited by Paper Ghosts, and our theme music is called Together We're Stronger by All Music 7. And don't forget that you can find a full transcript of today's podcast and links and extra information in our show notes. So anything you want to follow up from what you've heard today, um, check out there and you should find some useful extra resources. See you all next time. Bye. Bye.